You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Missy Ryan, national security reporter with the Washington Post. And I'm thrilled to be joined here today by Roberta Metzola, president of the European Parliament, to discuss the war in Ukraine and in the EU's role in the conflict. Roberta Metzola, welcome to the Washington Post. Thank you very much for having me. And remember, we always want to hear from you, our listeners and our audience. Uh, you can share your thoughts and your questions for guests by tweeting at Post Live. Roberta, before we jump into uh, the news, I'm hoping that you can share for our audience just briefly what the European Parliament's role is um, in, uh, in, the, in the conflict and how it differs from the role of the European Commission and the Council of the EU. So the European Parliament uh, is one that brings together 705 members from all countries that are members of the European Union. And we are the legislative branch uh, together with the Council uh, on all laws uh, and decisions, whether be they financial, be them on migration, on uh, environmental matters, but also with regards to sending emergency financial assistance uh, to Ukraine. But most importantly, I would also say that the European Parliament is what brings directly elected politicians from all countries that have shown unprecedented unanimity in, a, in, a, in an, let's say, within an institution that is quite difficult to find that unanimity ever since the 24th of February uh, with Russia's brutal invasion uh, into Ukraine. The first thing uh, we did this was a few weeks uh, after I, I got elected president uh, of this Parliament is to invite President Zelensky uh, to address the Parliament, uh, after which we would call started this essence of parliamentary diplomacy and democracy, uh, which meant that you had the President who was uh, um, addressing parliaments across the world. And you see that this has been a ground up movement of uh, resilience, of, of solidarity uh, with the courage uh, and the hope uh, that we wanted to give Ukrainians who are fighting what is ultimately a war in Europe and fighting for our values and our principles. Thank you. And I want to note for our audience that uh, your election marked a number of firsts for the European Parliament. I believe you were the, the youngest, you're the youngest president. You are the first uh, EU Parliament president uh, from Malta. And you also were the first head of a major EU body to visit Kyiv this spring. Um, I'd like to, to talk a little bit about uh, Ukraine's quest to join um, the EU. Late last week, the EU formally approved Ukraine's candidate st status to join the bloc um, and also to Moldova. Can you walk us through uh, the next steps and what the timeline will look like for that? Well, first of all, I was talking about uh, things that are unprecedented before. Uh, this is also something that I would not have thought possible five, six, even seven weeks ago, uh, that the European Union, uh, with such speed and such unanimity, such uh, collective action, uh, come together to say that we should open our doors uh, to Ukraine and to Moldova and with certain conditions also Georgia. Why do I say this? Because 
enlargement of the European Union has always been a very hotly debated topic. Uh, there have been countries that have been eager to see the European Union enlarge, countries that have been less eager. There are countries uh, that look at the European Union as an economic block, but at the end of the day, it is also a union that has to look at energy dependence, at security, at its geopolitical strategy going forward. And that uh, is what guided us. The European Parliament was also the first institution to welcome candidate status uh, towards taking that decision uh, last uh, last week. What did that message send? Uh, send? When I was in, in Kiev on the 1st of April, President Zelensky told me that 97% uh, of Ukrainians would like to join uh, the European Union. This means that they look to Europe as a home and we need to answer uh, and not leave uh, that any door or potential for that closed. The next steps will be important. Um, there are conditions attached. Every country has its own path. I very well remember the path that my country took to join the European Union. Uh, for some countries, it is longer than others. But this message from last week, with the next steps of integrating Ukraine more into our legislative framework, into our economic and digital, digital framework, for example, allowing um, Ukraine to be connected, of course, uh, continuing Ukraine to be connected to the EU's electricity market, uh, opening up all programs to young Ukrainians who want to live, move, study abroad, research, reconstruction, as, as, as I've been uh, talking about, which is something that has to be at the very top of our priorities. Uh, because we are seeing and, 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 and responding to, to, to desperate pleas of, for help by Ukrainians uh, in their ask to help reconstruct their villages and towns that have been razed to the ground by, by Russia. Uh, so these steps are incremental uh, and the European Parliament will be there at each and every step in order to ensure not only the political support but also the financial and logistical support that we have been uh, doing ever since the invasion. And to what extent, if any, I'm hoping you can explain for our viewers, to what extent do you think that the, that Ukraine being granted candidate status could alter the course of the war or potentially affect Russian decision making as it wages war against Ukraine? Well, if we consider that uh, Putin's original idea was to take over Kiev in five days, if you consider that his original idea was for NATO, uh, because that was what was first on the table, for NATO not to expand with a specific um, uh, um, focus on Ukraine in, 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 his, in his movements, if you see that not only have Ukrainians bravely and courageously, also with the help uh, of the United of the United Kingdom, the United States, of course, besides the European Union's help uh, in providing military and logistical and, and financial, but also humanitarian in aid, it has also led to Finland and Sweden joining uh, NATO. Uh, a decision that was taken today um, uh, in also with the speed that would have otherwise been unprecedented. So what we say uh, in the European Parliament and what we've been saying is that there is a world that is pre 24th of February 2022 and the world that is post 24th of February 2022. The world will never be the same again and definitely Europe will not be the same again. Mine is a generation that does not know war in Europe, that has not known war in Europe, but we are now uh, facing it. The next few months will be very, very challenging, but the 
public opinion and support for um, a common and united response against the invasion has meant that we have been so uh, united and strong in adopting sanctions and uh, in making sure that these sanctions uh, are felt by Putin uh, and, and his regime. This was the most important decision that we needed to take uh, in order to target uh, and for them to, to start to say to bite. Uh, and uh, as we also saw a couple of, uh, of days ago, that uh, the sanctions regime will also be extended uh, to cover um, uh, um, the mil military aspects uh, in order for the impact to be felt more by Russia. Uh, for us, uh, our target is uh, not only for us to be uncoupled from Russia um, uh, with regards to our dependence, our current dependence on Russian oil uh, gas uh, and coal, but also for us to be more interdependent between us, because at the end of the day, uh, and this is where the transatlantic alliance comes in, we have to know who to rely on, and we need to rely on democracies and not autocracies for the basic necessities for our citizens. No, and thank you for mentioning the oil and gas situation. I'm hoping to ask you about that. But, but first, uh, a little bit more on the, the EU candidate status. It does seem um, that there have been varying degrees of support from some European countries for Ukraine's accession to the EU. And we had some comments recently from Portuguese Prime Minister Antonio Costa, who said that the EU risks creating, quote unquote, false expectations um, with Ukraine's bid to join the EU. And he added that the, the EU should look at immediate support to Ukraine instead of opening legal debates. Um, do you think that Ukraine can realistically meet the stringent criteria that the EU sets forth in a time frame that will make a difference here? Well, all criteria have to be met. That's clear. All countries uh, ha are not treated differently to others. Uh, every country has its own path uh, to accession. There are different levels. Uh, that uh, that can be um, met or overcome between the time when you are uh, accepted as a candidate country to the date that you become a full member of the European Union. What we didn't want, and I, I understand uh, Prime Minister Costa's comments uh, to be also in this sense, is that Putin would take advantage of any potential differences between member states, whether historically or currently, in order to continue to put pressure on Ukraine uh, in order to continue uh, to bomb uh, and kill innocent civilians, which is what is happening today. Uh, the response that we gave last week was clear uh, and it was historic and it was unanimous. I was around the table uh, when that those discussions were taking place and it is those discussions that will guide us moving forward. Rather than speculating on the time frame, I would more speculate, I mean, I would more comment on the speed with which uh, Ukraine responded to all the questions posed uh, by the European Commission uh, and uh, also the other institutions, the speed with which uh, laws can be integrated. And now we have to also focus, first of all, on Ukraine winning the war and also on making sure that the further integration that is needed happens without legal, let's say, or political obstacles once the legal and technical um, arrangements have been made and found. Uh, we're speaking right after leaders of the G7 bloc of nations met in Germany to discuss the, the war in Ukraine and other issues. 
And President Zelensky reportedly told the G7 leaders that he wants the war to be concluded by the end of 2022. I'd love to hear your reaction on that comment. And also, there has been a pretty active debate, at least here in the United States, about what um, the United States and its European allies' position should be in encouraging um, potentially any concessions um, by uh, Kyiv in, uh, in potential negotiations with Russia. Do you believe that Ukraine should really attempt to push back to the pre uh, to the pre 2014 uh, borders of, of, of Ukrainian control, or do you believe that um, a more realistic scenario would be looking at um, the pre-February 24th situation? Well, I think what, I, what we should not forget is that this was an unprovoked invasion, a country's territorial sovereignty being not only threatened, but trampled on. An autocracy that has decided to, in its own words, liberate parts of an independent, democratic other country. This is the context, because sometimes we tend to forget it. And if we forget it, just as Putin did not stop in 2018 and, and eight, he did not stop in 2015, he will definitely not be stopping now. So my answer to that would be that rather talk about concessions, we, the, the war will end when Ukraine says that the war has ended. I understand the debates. I understand that we should do everything that we can for the war to end but not at any price, because freedom and democracy are priceless. And this is what we need to keep in mind. Ukrainians are not only fighting for their land, but they're fighting for the very essence of what the European Union and democratically sovereign countries stand for. Freedom, democracy, justice that come with peace. And with that, if we try to give the indication that we can somehow create concessions for Ukraine, then we would not be respecting Ukrainians the, right, the fundamental right of self-determination. And this is something that any country's leader would tell you in defending his or her own country. I'd like to ask you a, a question that we got from one of our viewers ahead of today's discussion. And uh, uh, this person's name is Fitzgerald Yaw from the South American country of Guyana who asks, how can the EU help open the port of Odessa, which as we know is so crucial for uh, Ukrainian commerce and um, global food ex exports? Well, th this is an excellent question and it's a debate uh, that is being held both uh, um, with Ukraine, but also internationally uh, within the context of the uh, United Nations and, and countries that are in the neighborhood that could help unblock the current impossibility uh, of food uh, and all supplies that are currently stuck Ukrainian ports. Uh, this is a huge ripple effect of this war, of Russia's invasion, that is putting millions and millions of people on this planet at the risk of hunger, starvation and famine. Uh, this is not something that can be taken lightly. Time is running out. Uh, there are countries that have less than a month's supply for basic supplies, such as grains and cereal. We're already seeing huge shortages uh, of sunflower oil, for example. Um, uh, we have seen also the impossibility of fertilizer being delivered uh, to countries that are desperately in need of that to grow uh, their own products. So the European Union is very much involved in trying to negotiate the so-called 
called blue corridors, maritime corridors, but if in, in, in default of that also land corridors in order for transport to be made available through other ports in the European Union that would then be able to ship the supplies to the countries that need them most. But make no mistake, this unilateral, brutal invasion has also the consequence of causing global effects of of disproportionate uh, impact uh, in terms of, uh, of individuals around this planet that will be hit directly. And that is something that we should say and we need to hold uh, the perpetrators in this regard to account. I want to, I think we have time for one more question and I actually want to build on what you were just talking about uh, regarding the, the uh, exploration of alternative means to export food from Ukraine. Um, as you mentioned, there's this growing food crisis caused in part by by the war in Ukraine, but also by a cumulative effect of conflict and climate change. I actually was in Berlin on Friday with Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who uh, co-chaired a food security summit with um, the German and Italian foreign ministers. And, and there was a pledge that European countries and the countries that um, do have the resources to help were going to look at ways to do more. But at the same time, there was some criticism after the G7 from aid organizations, including Oxfam, that the commitments really were not strong enough, large enough to countries like Egypt, like Yemen, like Somalia that are facing crises, Ethiopia right now. I would just love your response to that. Do you think that European countries are uh, reaching into their pockets deep enough, given the immediacy of these needs? I would add Afghanistan to that list um, uh, as a country that is uh, currently currently under huge pressure and with a, with a severely deteriorating situation uh, for women uh, and girls particularly. Uh, but uh, I, I sense uh, that reaction uh, and I understand it. Uh, what uh, we can't have is for countries to look away at uh, those uh, countries that are on the front line and will be the ones who are going to be hit hardest in the next uh, few weeks and months uh, uh, and, and especially uh, in, in this year. Uh, but I would also on this, on the other hand, also understand uh, leaders of countries that say I have uh, to, uh, to find solutions to cushion the financial impact of rising prices and all the factors coming together with the stratospheric uh, energy prices, potential gas cuts uh, in the autumn, having to re-power uh, re coal plants uh, simply because it's too expensive to do otherwise, having to invest uh, in, in renewables while at the same time not uh, impacting uh, development aid across the world. So we, what we also need to, to explain, I think, as, as, as elected representatives is also, first of all, our decisions but also how we're going to keep also the consumers, our citizens, uh, at, uh, 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 at the core of our decisions when we know that they are going to bear uh, the biggest and most immediate brunt. So there is a discussion that is going on as to how in the European Union that brunt can be, um, can be mitigated, uh, what would be the immediate and medium uh, term measures uh, in terms of going, going, looking at uh, what will probably be a very difficult winter, but absolutely for uh, all organizations and for those who have worked uh, in the development field, uh, all commitments need to be not 
only kept up, but the challenges that are going to be felt around the world are, are uh, multiplied this year, and we cannot leave that out of all our argumentation and decisions. Well, I have a, a long list of questions that I would have liked to have asked you, and I'm sure we could go on for quite some time, but unfortunately, we are out of time, and we're going to have to leave it here. EU Parliament President Roberta Mazzola, thank you so much for joining Washington Post Live. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.